we are talking about this huge topic of the end of the world. I've always been fascinated by this topic. I shared when we were promoting this series, when a trailer comes on the Discovery Channel, it, it grabs every single one of us, you know, like uh, a new tablet unearthed 4,000 years ago speaks of the end of the world. Is it true? We're all like, oh, yeah, I'm totally watching that if it's on right now. I'm totally watching that. We love that stuff. We're fascinated by it. It's in books. It's in movies. And the Bible has a ton to say about the end of the world. In fact, the Bible has more to say about the time period we're living in right now than any other period in all of history. Let's sink in for a second. The Bible says more about the time period we're living in now than it does any other period in all of history. The reason for that is the reason we're talking about this today and for these next few weeks. The Bible says so much about the end of the world that it would be impossible for us to cover it in three or four weeks. It would take us probably about a year of Sunday morning messages. And so for this series, all we're focusing on are a few signs that the Bible tells us we can watch for that will mark the coming of the end of the world. And then we're going to talk about the big first major event that's basically going to be the opening volley, the opening serve of the major end times events. But in the spirit of great storytelling, I'm going to leave that event for the last message of this series. And I'm just going to build the tension and rope you in probably three weeks. And then we're going to get right to it. We're all going to drive everything up to that big first event. We're going to discuss about that. So let's dive in right here. And I thought a good place to start would be to simply understand what the Bible means by the term last days. It shows up a lot in Scripture, and according to the Bible, the last days actually began on what's known as the day of Pentecost. You see, after Jesus finished his ministry on the earth, he ascended back to heaven and promised his disciples he would send the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in them to empower them to minister to be ministers for Jesus on his behalf. And the day that happened was the day of a feast called Pentecost. All the disciples were in Jerusalem. They were praying. The Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost. They were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. A guy like Peter, who was previously terrified to be a witness for Jesus, goes out and preaches to the same people who crucified Jesus, and 3,000 of them become believers in one day. Incredible things are happening on what's known as the day of Pentecost. And when Peter preaches, he quotes an old prophecy from a prophet named Joel in the Old Testament in the Bible. And this is what it says from Acts chapter 2. It says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, there's the phrase, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy so Peter is basically saying this prophecy that was hundreds of years old has been fulfilled today on the day of Pentecost so he's saying this is happening and it is the last days the last days are beginning right now so the term last days refers to the time period that began in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost around 33 AD and continues up to this present day So I need you to look at somebody next to you and say, we're in the last days. Everybody's got to do it. I'll just wait it out awkwardly till everybody does it. We're in the last days. Okay. So here's what we need to understand. We are in the last days, and that phrase has covered almost 2,000 years at this point. 
So when people talk about the last days and the Bible talks about the last days, it can be a little confusing, but now you know what the time period it's talking about. What we're discussing in this series is the last of the last days. We might call them the end times as well because Jesus gave signs that would happen in the last days and then he gave signs that would happen right before it really all came to an end. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And so I thought we would start with what is, in my opinion, the most incredible prophecy in the entire Bible. I would say that any prophecy about Jesus is the most important prophecy, but this might be the most incredible prophecy in all of Scripture. And we begin somewhere between 701 and 681 B.C., before Christ, around 700 years before Christ. The nation of Israel is split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, Samaria being in the north and Judea being in the south. Two different kingdoms ruled by two different kings. In the north are generally the half-Jews, the Samaritans. In the south generally are the full-blooded Jews, and they're all centered around Jerusalem, their holy city and the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And this time period is significant because even though the nation is split, They're still ruled by Jews and Israelis themselves. They're under their own political rule. And this is one of the small times in history when that's actually true. They're ruling their own territory and country. So we have a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote this prophecy during that time period in one of the books of the Bible. It's the book that bears his name, Isaiah. So grab your pens. This is on your sheet. You're going to want to underline some things as we go. This is the prophecy. Isaiah says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand, and then you're going to want to underline again the second time, to recover the remnant of his people, and then you're going to want to underline who are left, from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, which is just modern-day Iraq, from Hamath, And you're going to want to underline, and the islands of the sea, and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the, and you might want to underline, outcasts of Israel. And gather together, and then you're going to want to underline the rest here, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The four corners of the earth. Let's begin to break down this prophecy and and see what it's actually saying. Because this prophecy gives some very specific characteristics. This is not like a Nostradamus prophecy where you can apply it to anything. This is not like a horoscope. This prophecy has some very specific prerequisites that would have to be fulfilled in order for this prophecy to come true. So notice it says that God is going to recover the remnant of his people who are left. But what does the second line say? It says, again, the second time. So it's describing a time when God is going to gather the people. They've been sent out of Israel, out of their land. He's going to bring them back together. And it says the second time. Why is that so significant? Because there hasn't been a first time yet. There hasn't been a first time. They haven't been exiled for the first time yet. To put this in perspective, that would be like me saying, hey, you know what's going to happen? Canada, Canadians, we're all going to be dispersed all over, the, all over the place. We're going to be brought back in. Then it's going to happen again. And then we're going to be brought back in again. And that's the time I'm prophesying about. It's a pretty epic prophecy, pretty bold prediction by Isaiah. So what else do we notice? We notice it says to recover the remnant of his people who are left. 
So obviously something's going to happen when Israel is dispersed that many of them are simply going to disappear. They're going to be destroyed. There's only going to be a remnant. There's only going to be some left. Something is going to happen to apparently the majority of them. We notice that the second exile is going to be severe. In fact, it says that Israel is going to be scattered all over the world. It says to the four corners of the earth and the islands of the sea. And that term, the islands of the sea, was simply a cultural term referring to far-off lands and continents that hadn't even been discovered yet. The unknown world, essentially. So when this event takes place, Israel is going to be scattered to every corner of the earth. Well, wouldn't you know it, around a hundred years later, the first exile happens. The year is 586 B.C. Israel is still in two kingdoms. And in 586 B.C., the mighty Babylonians come in and they conquer Jerusalem. And they level the city, including the temple, down to the ground. And the entire southern kingdom of Judea is captured and most of the Jews are taken off to Babylon in captivity. Situation would last for several decades and and this first exile is generally referred to as the Babylonian captivity. And it's during this time when many Israelis are in Babylon that we have famous stories like Daniel in the lion's den. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you're familiar with the story, you get thrown into the fire, don't get burned. That all takes place during the Babylonian captivity. And so one of the Jews who's exiled in Babylon is another prophet named Ezekiel. And while he was in Babylon, the Lord gives him this prophecy. He writes it during the Babylonian captivity in Babylon. Grab your pen again because we're going to want to underline some more key things. It says this in the book of Ezekiel 37. Thus says the Lord, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into and then underline their own land, their own land says and i will make them one nation underline one nation in the land on the mountains of israel and then underline one king shall be king over them all they shall no longer be two nations underline they'll no longer be two nations and underline nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again so ezekiel prophesies while he's in babylon that israel will return to their own country one day But he gives some prerequisites. He says they're going to be their own political nation. They're going to be ruled by a single political figure, a king, a prime minister, a president. They're going to be a unified nation. There's not going to be northern and southern kingdoms. And they're never going to be divided again. And all of these points are extremely important because Israel in a few decades is released from the Babylonian captivity and allowed to return to Israel But none of those criteria are met. They are still ruled by foreign powers for the next couple of thousand years. None of those criteria politically under their own rule, one king, an undivided kingdom, those criteria are not met. That's so important because it tells us that the prophecy that Ezekiel is writing here is not referring to Israel coming back after the Babylonian captivity, because none of the prerequisites are met. So he has to be referring to the second act that God is going to do that Isaiah referenced as well. Well, the plot thickens. Centuries go by. In the year 70 AD, almost 37 years after Jesus has ascended back to heaven, 
there is a massive uprising in Israel, in southern Israel. Huge uprising. They rebel against the Roman authority. They try to overthrow them. It's a terrible idea. The Roman general, Titus Vespasian, comes in with his army and crushes the violent uprising with emphasis. They literally destroy Jerusalem, leaving only some key sites made up of massive stones like what's known as the Wailing Wall right now. They literally burn the temple to the ground. They move every single brick by hand because when they burned it, they wanted all the gold that was ornately laid over the inside of the temple to drip down through the bricks to the ground. And then they move every brick to get every ounce of gold that had melted through the bricks. Not a single brick of the temple is left unturned. Not one. It's completely done. After that happens, something huge begins to happen in the people of Israel known as the diaspora. The diaspora. The Jewish people are scattered all over the world and Israel becomes essentially a wasteland occupied by only a few people. The word diaspora literally means scattering or dispersion. And that's what happens after Jerusalem falls in 70 AD. Jews go and find new homes all over the world, in Europe, in Africa, in South America, in Brooklyn, in Boca, in South Florida, all over the place. They go everywhere. Israel emphatically ceases to exist as even a territory. There's practically nothing there. To add insult to injury, the Romans rename the territory Palestine. The reason it's an insult is Palestine is just a variation of the word Philistine, Philistine, which were one of the Israelis and the Jews' oldest and longest standing enemies. So to add insult to injury, the Romans literally rename the territory after some of their arch enemies. And this is the second exile that Isaiah is writing about. They're scattered now. They're all over the world. And so if the Bible is true, then following the diaspora, following the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, Israel would have to become a political nation again. Otherwise, the prophecy by Isaiah, the prophecy by Ezekiel cannot be fulfilled. Can't be true. And the territory of Israel will be ruled by all kinds of different groups over the next 1900 years or so, but never by the Jews during the next almost two millennia. And as the centuries pass, even the world's greatest theologians begin to say, there's only one explanation for these prophecies. They must be metaphors. They must be allegories. Because last time I checked, it's been 1,800 years since Israel's been a country. I think we can call it done at this point. So it must be an allegory. It basically means they're saying these prophecies must be word pictures. They must be symbolic. They must be be talking about something else. But there were a few devoted Bible scholars who said, listen, I know it looks impossible, but we can't call the Bible allegorical just because it looks impossible to us. Scripture is explicit. Israel will be a nation again, according to the Bible. And that was a fringe theological position, not a widely accepted position at all. In 1867, this is such a God thing. To emphasize the point, in 1867, I believe it was God who orchestrated Mark Twain visiting 
Israel and Jerusalem. And Mark Twain records the state of Israel in 1867. This is what he writes. He says, it is a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route. Hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, whose fast friends of a worthless soil had almost deserted the country. Of Jerusalem, Mark Twain said, a fast walker could go outside the walls of Jerusalem and walk entirely around the city in an hour. I do not know how else to make one understand how small it is. Words of Mark Twain. Then in the early 20th century, World War I happens. And in the aftermath of World War I, Germany lies in a state of discontent. Many of you know the story from school history. It creates a perfect storm where a man named Hitler is allowed to rise to prominence on the promise of Germany returning to greatness and the German people being the chosen people of the earth. Hitler begins taking over Europe and in fact the world and even secular historians will tell you that Hitler had a very occultic, satanic agenda. There's documentation showing that Hitler in his castle where he's finally commits suicide at the end of the war, he could be heard at night pacing, screaming at the voices he claimed were haunting him. Hitler was a man who, as believers, we would say was quite simply possessed. And the greatest evidence of this is simply that he made it his primary goal to eradicate the Jewish race, God's chosen people from the earth. And he almost succeeded. He kills over six million of them. I still don't think we can even wrap our head around that sort of figure. He kills over six million of them. But as always, God does something extraordinary in the midst of incredible pain and incredible evil. In the aftermath of World War II, the world was never more sympathetic towards Israel and Jews than it was following World War II. It's never been that sympathetic pretty much ever again. When the war was over and the Jewish people had been almost wiped off the face of the earth, the end result is May 14th, 1948. And that is the date the United Nations did exactly what God willed them to do and created the political nation, the state of Israel. And in a single day, Ezekiel's prophecy that's around 2,500 years old is fulfilled. In a single day, Isaiah's prophecy that's around 2,640 years old is fulfilled. In one day. You can go and find the archive photos online. Jews from all over the world just begin flocking to Israel. There's amazing photos. The, the, the newborn government of Israel does things like they grab Boeing commercial planes, strip all the seats out, fly the plane to Ethiopia, where there's a ton of Ethiopian Jews and say, come back to the homeland. And Jews with nothing more than the clothes on their back jump on the plane. They fit a thousand people onto a plane, standing remotely, fly them to Israel. There's a kid born on the flight over to Israel. And this just begins happening from all over the world. They just begin flooding back into Israel when there's nothing there. It starts from absolutely nothing. And just like that, Israel is a political nation again. Not divided by north and south made up of Jews from the four corners of the earth, one government, one prime minister, ruling their own political nation. Just think about this, 1,900 years without a country, 
did not cause the nation of Israel to cease to exist. The nation of Israel exists for 1,900 years outside of Israel, all over the earth, and then comes back together. And this is what I love. The greatest attempt to remove them from the face of the earth results in their revival and the birth of the state of Israel. It's just fantastic. Hitler takes his best shot, and because of what he does, Israel ends up being born again as a country. Only God could pull something like that off. Only God could do that. But wait, there's more. There's more. The day after Israel is declared a nation in 1948. Are you tracking with me? The day after. Hey, we're a nation. Great party in the streets. Everybody's happy. The next day, the armies of four Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, Transjordan, and Iraq, entered Israel with the intention of wiping them off the map. The day after they became a country. Saudi Arabia even sends a military contingent to operate under Egyptian command. Yemen doesn't participate, but Yemen as well declares war on Israel. This is important for us to understand in the context of modern day Israel. Because here's what you need to understand. You have got to understand that these countries hated Israel when they had not existed as a country for 1900 years and hadn't existed again for even 24 hours. Are you tracking with me? They didn't even have time to politically offend anybody. The reason those countries were offended is because they hate Israel for being Israel. To them, the offense that Israel commits is existing. You've got to understand that because whenever you turn on the news or you read newspapers and everybody says, this is the cause of the conflict. Well, this is why they don't like Israel. Go all the way back, 1948. Six countries surrounding them declare war on them. They haven't even existed for 24 hours. They hate them because they hate them. That's the bottom line. It's not because of anything they've done. They hate them because Satan hates them. That's the bottom line. So after a year of fighting which is miraculous in and of itself. I mean, you, you don't really have time to form a cohesive military and everything when you've existed for a day. Against all odds, they withstand the assault and a ceasefire is declared after one year. But when all the dust settles, Jordan has control of half of Jerusalem, including the old city, which includes the Temple Mount, which is the holiest site in Jerusalem. Jordan has control of half the city. Israel has control of the other half. And from a biblical perspective, this is a massive, massive problem. And I'll tell you why. Because the Bible actually contained more prophecies about Israel that had yet to be fulfilled. And it still contains more that have yet to be fulfilled. For example, all of Zechariah 14 in the Old Testament describes the day of the Lord's second coming. The day when Jesus will return to the earth again. This is what it says. Let me read it to you. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the woman ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, that phrase is huge, in that day, it means the same day, the same time, his feet, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the earth and half of it towards the south. That's how you make an entrance, by the way. 
So when Jesus comes back, this is literally what's going to happen. He's going to return to the exact spot that he ascended from in 33 AD. He's going to touch down. His feet are going to land on that spot on the Mount of Olives. When he lands, the mountain is literally going to split into two. That's how you make an entrance, right? And so this is why it's so important for us to underline that phrase, in that day, in that day in verse 4. We could talk about the second of coming of Christ all day, but for the purpose of today's study, I need you to notice that it says all of these things, God fighting on Israel's behalf, Jesus returning, that's going to happen when half the city falls. So we know that it cannot be referring to what happens in 1948 when Jordan takes half the city. So it must be a future event. So now here's the problem. If Zechariah 14 is going to come true, Israel is going to have to gain control of all of Jerusalem. Because you have to have control of the whole thing in order for half of it to be taken. 1948, they only have control of half of it. Well, in 1967, the situation was tense. Israel's rivals and neighbors, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan still hated their guts. They were constantly attacking Israel, sending incursions in, sending rocket attacks, attacking cities that bordered their territories. And eventually things begin to escalate towards war. Egypt, Syria, and Jordan begin massing their troops on the border of Israel. Egypt masses 100 to 160,000 troops right on Israel's border. They're going. They're going to come attack Israel and do it again. And then God moves. Israel launches a preemptive attack on the Air Force of Egypt and destroys their entire Air Force on the ground. All of it. 400 planes. On the, Egypt can't even get a plane off the ground to launch an attack against Israel. Then the ground war begins. Israel obliterates three armies in six days. That's how long the war lasts. Six days. God just moves. This is huge because if you look at a map of Israel, it's tiny. It's narrow. It's surrounded on almost every side by people who hate it and want it to not exist. But they can't get rid of it. They can't wipe it off the map because God is supernaturally protecting them. Six days, the war is over. During the fighting, Israel takes more territory. They expand their borders to include Gaza and the West Bank, and most importantly, all of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. And suddenly, the pieces are in place for Zechariah's prophecy to be fulfilled. Not allegorically, but quite literally. And as a side note, I really want us to understand that this is the actual history. This is what happened. You can go look it up on Wikipedia if you want. Israel only possesses Gaza and the West Bank because its neighbors attacked it and tried to destroy it. That's the only reason Israel has that territory. They pushed back and they took it. It's really interesting because if you, if you study your Bible, you'll find in Genesis that God makes an unconditional land promise to Abraham, the father of the faith, the first Jew. When I say unconditional, the land promise is not if you follow me, Abraham, I'll give you all this land. The promise is just, I'm going to give you all this land. And the area of the land is massive. It's huge. In fact, in Israel's history in the Old Testament, they only ever take possession of 10% of what God promised them. It's a whole nother lesson in that. 
But there are many biblical scholars who believe that they're able to take that territory, Gaza and the West Bank, because it was an unconditional promise to Abraham that still stands. The idea is that there's many scholars who believe that if Israel were to go and try and take any land that falls in the borders that God promised Abraham, they'd be able to do it even today. It's just one opinion I share as an interesting aside. But it all comes down to this. These disputed territories that are full of Palestinians right now, the only reason Israel has them is because those very people tried to destroy Israel. That's how they came to possess those territories. That's how it happened. And have you ever stopped to wonder, okay, so, so if all the people, if all the oppressed Palestinians who are in Gaza and the West Bank, if they all come from those surrounding countries, Jordan and Egypt, why don't those countries just take them back? It's a pretty logical question. The reason is they love the fact that they are a thorn in Israel's side. They love the fact that most of the world looks on and hates Israel because of what's going there. And those countries will not allow those people to come back through their borders. They won't let them come in. But you never hear in the newspaper anybody saying, how can Jordan be so inhumane as to not let these people in? You never hear that reported. But these are the, this is the origins of the entire Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And, and here's, what I'm, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everything Israel does is right. I'm not saying Israel handles every situation well. I'm not saying Israel treats everybody the way they should be treated. What I am saying is God is for Israel. God gave the land to Israel. You can take the history back as far as you want. God gave it to them first. And if I'm going to choose a side, you can fall where you want. I'm going to side with God. That's where my allegiance is going to lie. And I know it's messy. I know it's an unpopular opinion. But I'm going to side with God every single time. I'd encourage you to do the same thing. And so I hope that the prophecies we've studied so far, I hope they amaze you. Because if you're sitting there thinking, huh, that's neat, you're kind of missing the point. The point is that pulling this off prophetically cannot be faked. It can't be faked. You can't call this 2,600 years in advance. You can't call a second exile when a first one hasn't even happened. If you examine this rationally, you can only come to one conclusion. The conclusion you must come to is that whatever the origin is of these prophecies, whatever the origin is, it must exist outside of our space-time continuum. Whatever the origin of these prophecies is, it is something or someone who has control over the past, the present, and the future and has the ability to bend it to his will. But the one thing you can't do is you can't just dismiss it. You can't dismiss it because these are prophecies across thousands of years being fulfilled with incredible specificity. Incredible specificity. By the way, do you remember how Mark Twain describes Israel as essentially being a wasteland? God does a miracle there too. Today, Israel is the most fertile agricultural land in the world. In the world. Not only that, in the past few years, they've discovered Israel may very well possess the greatest natural resources in the world. They found enormous deposits of oil and natural gas under the desert in Israel, in the Negev. 
so much that Russia, who's desperate to control the world's natural gas supplies, has been trying to negotiate with Israel to get a contract on it. And Israel's kind of said, hey, uh, Russia, you know how you've kind of like hated us for the past 70 years? Yeah, we're going to pass. Thanks very much. Russia hates Israel's guts right now. So God has blessed them. He's done an incredible thing in that country that's miraculous. There's no other explanation than that God has moved and done something amazing. But incredibly, we're still not done. We haven't even reached the most amazing part of this whole thing yet. Let's take a look at a prophecy spoken by Jesus himself. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 24, and this is on your outlines. Jesus writes this. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And let's break this down, because you might be thinking, I don't get it. Jesus is into fig trees. Cool. Don't really understand what it has to do with me. But in Scripture, the fig tree is consistently used as a national symbol for Israel. It represents Israel, the nation. And when studying the Bible, we actually have a term called expositional constancy. Expositional constancy. So if you came here today just to learn something to make you sound smarter, you can leave at this point, because expositional constancy is your thing for today. Expositional constancy just refers to something being used as a symbol consistently in the Bible. And here's what I mean. When we talk about the lamb, it always represents, close, Jesus. The lamb always represents Jesus. I'll give you guys a second try. The sheep always represents God's people. God's people, close. I think we'll get this one. The dove. The dove? Yes. Nailed it. The dove, the Holy Spirit. That's good. Leaven always represents sin. It always represents sin. We are schooled on the dove representing the Holy Spirit. We are good to go with that. Okay. I appreciate you uh, attempting to answer. I appreciate the participation. So the disciples would have understood expositional constancy, and they would have immediately understood that when Jesus is talking about the fig tree, he's talking about the nation of Israel. I put the reference on there. You can look it up in Hosea chapter 9 later on today if you want. So in this conversation, if you read Matthew 24, Jesus has just been describing in detail a whole bunch of signs that will mark the last of the last days. We're going to go through some of those in the coming weeks. So after he's done all that, Jesus says this. So the context is the end of the world, the last of the last days. And Jesus is speaking to them about Israel, the nation. And he says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. He represents the nation of Israel. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. We used to have a fig tree in my garden growing up. And the thing about fig trees is during winter, the tree looks but ugly because it looks completely dead. It looks completely dead. Every winter, you're like, has the tree just died? And then against all odds in the spring, suddenly every, every time, sure enough, it begins to bud and it begins to bloom and it begins to come back to life. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, listen, Pay attention to Israel during the winter months when it looks dead. He says, pay attention. And then Jesus says, when it begins coming back to life again, when Israel begins coming back to life again, he says, summer is almost near. So what's summer? 
in the context of this parable, this illustration, it's everything he's talked about before in Matthew 24. Everything they've been talking about. The last of the last days. Jesus says, so you also, when you see all these things, when you see Israel coming back to life again as a nation, know that it is near at the doors. And then Jesus is actually going to define just how close. He says this. He says, assuredly I say to you, This generation, underline this generation. He's not talking about their generation. He's saying the generation that sees Israel become a nation again. He says this generation, underline this, will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Till everything else in Matthew 24 takes place. How serious is Jesus about what he's saying? Well, he says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. This prophecy is astounding. Jesus is saying, I know this sounds crazy. I know this sounds impossible. But you can take this to the bank. Pay attention to Israel when it looks like it's dead. And he's saying this in the early 30s AD. Israel is still, even though they're being ruled by somebody else, they're still a little bit alive. But they're going to become completely dead for almost 2,000 years. He says, pay attention When you see Israel, the nation, begin to come alive again, generation that sees that happen will not pass away until I come back. It's a huge, huge promise. So if we take the most conservative interpretation of this prophecy, the most conservative viewpoint, Jesus is saying the last person who was alive when Israel became a nation in 1948 will not be dead before I come back. That's the most conservative approach to this prophecy. But if you study the scriptures, you will actually find the best argument for the term a generation in scripture is around 70 years. It's around 70 years. And many people hold to that. And in case you're wondering, 70 years after 1948 is 2018. It's 2018. Now you know why most churches aren't teaching on this passage of scripture. It's a little bit awkward to stand up and share. But Israel becoming a nation in 1948 really kicked off the last of the last days. It narrowed the window from some point in the future all the way down to a generation, a much narrower portion of time. And according to Jesus, the first major end times event, which we'll define in a few weeks, is going to take place at some point between that incredible day in 1948 and most conservatively, the death of the last person who was alive when Israel was born again as a nation. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. And at this point, I want to address two things, two misconceptions that people have about the Bible in the end times. You know, people will often say this when we talk about this stuff. They'll say, well, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. And it's true. But I would ask you to repeat that again and ask yourself what it is that Jesus said. Jesus said, no man knows the what? The day or the hour. Well, Jesus says that so that when someone shows up, if I show up this morning and I say, he's told me what day it is, it's going to be September 3rd, 2015, and I am selling spots in my compound a short drive from here, and I would love to invite you to join me for the end of the world. Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour so that you won't fall for stuff like that, so that people can't go nuts, they can't go crazy. The Bible actually says, Jesus says, not even he knows 
Try to wrap your head around that. Jesus says, I don't even know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows. But Jesus says, he says, you can know the generation. And I'm going to suggest you can narrow it down even more than that as you begin to study Scripture. Jesus knows the season of time. He knows the generation. He knows the generation. So write this down. We don't know the day or the hour, but we have been given the generation. We've been given the generation. That's why the Bible gives us prophecies about Israel that are so ridiculous we would recognize when they're being fulfilled and go, there's no other way to take this. Secondly, people will often say, well, you know, every Christian since Jesus left has, has believed that the end was near. You ever heard that before? Sure, yeah. Every Christian's believed that. And again, for the most part, that's true. And, and, and I would argue that I think it's God's design that every believer lives in expectation of the imminent arrival of Jesus. I think that's God's design because it changes the way you live when you believe Jesus could come back at any moment. It radically changes the way you live. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews about Abraham that, that, that somehow he got a glimpse of where he was going. He got a glimpse of heaven. And the result of that was he didn't even ever build himself a house. He was by most accounts the wealthiest man in the world, but he spent his life living in tents because he saw where he was going and he's like, what's the point? What's the point in investing five years of my life in building my dream house? I know where I'm going. This is like a shack compared to where I'm going. It radically changed the way Abraham lived. And when you live in the expectation that Jesus is coming back any second, it changes the way you live. But here's what I want to point out to you. I know every generation has said that, but even based on what we've just studied, we now understand it couldn't have been any generation before 1948 because there are unfulfilled prophecies in Scripture. We are now at the place in the scope of history in the Bible where we do not have to explain away prophecies that seem impossible by saying they're just metaphors, they're just allegories. We don't have to do that anymore. We're able to take them literally. There are things like in the book of Revelation describes an army of 200 million coming out of the east. And so for centuries people go, it's got to be a metaphor because there's not 200 million people on the planet. It's a good argument. Today that's the size of China's military. We can take it literally. We don't have to take any prophecies metaphorically that are regarding the end times. We're able to take them very, very literally. And so even though every generation has said that, things are very, very different now to how they were even before 1948. And I hope you're grasping that. I hope you're understanding that. And as we study through several different things over the coming weeks, we're going to find that the window, the season of history is going to get even smaller and smaller. Like every time Jesus gives us a new identifying sign or marker of the last of the last days, the window gets smaller to the amount of time, the amount of history that it can apply to. And that's what we're going to see taking place over the next couple of weeks. Today, we narrow down the second coming of Christ to a second generation, to just a single generation, I'm sorry. We narrowed it down to within a single generation. It's a pretty good start, I think. Today, we're only 34 years away from the 100th anniversary of Israel becoming a nation. If you took a very conservative approach, we're only four years away from what we would define as a biblical generation by many accounts. In terms of narrowing it down, that's a, that's a pretty good start. And I, you know, I understand, I understand how crazy this sounds. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't just dismiss it. If you can do the research, if you can study and find a way to 
take it differently, then, then do that. But don't just dismiss it because it's there in black and white in the Bible. And these are the words of Jesus Christ himself saying, the generation sees Israel come back to life will not pass away before all these things take place. And so what does the future hold for Israel? What does the future hold for Israel? You can read Zechariah 14 on your own time and find out some of it, but, but here's what sticks out to me the most when it comes to God's plans for Israel. They have for the most part rejected Jesus. They have for the most part continued to reject Jesus. God chose them to be his people, the Bible says, not because they were the best of anything, but because they were the least of the least. And he chose them to be an example of his faithfulness and goodness. And this is what's so amazing. God has said, I'm going to keep a group of them, a remnant of Jews. There's always going to be throughout history a group of Jews who believe in me. They're going to be mine throughout history. And you're going to find that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 11, which is another great chapter to read about the fate of the nation of Israel that's coming up. The Apostle Paul says, he says, you know, generally they're under a partial blindness. There's this remnant that God is saving for himself throughout history. But right now, the nation of Israel, the Jews for the most part, are under spiritual blindness that God's put on them. But at the end of everything, at the second coming of Christ, that blindness is lifted and the Bible says they're going to weep when they realize who Jesus was as they would over the death of a firstborn son. And then Paul writes this. He says, all Israel will be saved. Those are the words of Paul. At the second coming of Christ, all Israel will be saved. That's left. And what I want us to take away from that is the incredible faithfulness of God that's demonstrated in that. That's how God treats the people that he made a promise to, even when they broke their promise to him a million times across thousands of years. And so if that's how God treats them, you can bank on God's kindness for your own life. When God says he's got you, when he says you are secure, when he says no one can snatch you out of his hand, he's able to keep that promise. And when you doubt that, I encourage you to look at the history of Israel. Being scattered across the earth was not something God could not overcome. Almost 2,000 years without a country was not too much for God to overcome. Being surrounded by enemies on every side, not too much for God. He's able to keep his promises. So when God says he's got you, he's got you. And he's got the power to keep that promise to you. And I hope that that's encouraging to you. He keeps his promises. That's what I want us to take away from today. We serve a faithful, faithful God. And then the other thing I want you to begin thinking about is that we're... I really believe we're in, we're in the last of the last days. And if you keep coming out over the next several weeks, you're going to discover even more why I believe that. And I think that even though that sets your head spinning right now, you're going to find it very, very hard to make the Bible say anything else. So keep coming out. It's going to be an incredible series. We're going to see some amazing, amazing things. But I want to pray for you. And then we're going to spend some time worshiping what I encourage you to do is just to spend some time meditating on the faithfulness of God. And then to really ask yourself the question, what would you change about your life if you knew that, man, some point in the next four years, Jesus is coming back? Whether you believe that or not, whether you're convinced or not, that's a good question to ask because the best follow-up question to that is, why aren't we doing that right now? Why aren't we living that way right now? Let's go ahead and pray. Would you close your eyes and bow your head? 
And just while everybody has their eyes closed, I, I just want to ask this question. Do you have a relationship with the God who commands the past, the present, and the future? The God who bends it all to his will. You know, that God wants to offer you a relationship and a future with him, but there's a problem. The problem is the Bible says we've all rejected God and gone our own way. And that's the most serious crime anyone could ever commit. We've rejected God. But the Bible also says that God did the most extraordinary thing in the world. Jesus, the only Son of God the Father, came to the earth and took that punishment for you and me. He was punished for you rejecting God. He was punished for me rejecting God. That's what happened on the cross. He took our place. And if we'll admit to him that we needed him to do that, if we'll give our lives to him in return for him giving his life for ours, he will adopt us into his family. He'll make us his son. He'll make us his daughter. And he'll make us new from the inside out. And he will make sure that your future is with him because he has the power to make it happen. He has the power to keep his promises against all odds. So if you want that today, you want that relationship with Jesus, and you've never told him, God, I need, I need you. I need you to be my God. This is your day. This is your moment if that's you. And for the rest of us, I just want us to begin thinking about that question. How, how would you live differently if you knew at some point in the next four years we're going to be with Jesus? We're going to be with Jesus. You know, if, if Satan can't have you, if he can't have your soul, his next objective for you is to make you waste your life. His next goal is simply, well, then let me make sure you spend your time on this earth doing things that don't really matter. I love what Francis Chan says. He said, you know, the thing we should be most afraid of is not failure, but succeeding at things that don't really matter. And so I don't know what that looks like for you, but I want to ask, what, what would you do differently? What would you do differently? Who would you talk to? Who would you seek restoration with? Who would you forgive? Who would you serve? And that's how we should be living right now. That's the way God wants us to live. But I also want to encourage you, if you have ever doubted the promises of God, if you've ever thought, I don't know how he could keep that promise for me. He calls you and I as sons and daughters, but Israel is like a child to him as a nation. Look at how he's treated them. Look at how he's sheltered them. Look at how he's protected them. Look at the miracles he's done on their behalf. When God promises something, there is nothing that can stand in the way of that promise being kept. Nothing. Because when God speaks, the universe bends to his will. 
because he holds it all in the palm of his hand. There's nothing too difficult for him. So my prayer for all of us is that faith would rise up within us. We would be full of faith. We would be full of trust in God. Not doubting, but full of faith.